I am Solis Veritas, and this is the Defending American Exceptionalism podcast. It appears many Americans have forgotten what makes America exceptional. This podcast is here to remind them. The greatest country on earth has been so successful that it may now be suffering from that very success. The lack of any real suffering in recent decades has made it all too easy for people to criticize and malign the greatest country ever to have been established by man, while sitting comfortably in their centrally heated homes, watching big screen TVs, interacting with their fellow men primarily through social media, and experiencing life events via virtual reality video games. This podcast is meant to serve as a reminder and tutorial on the unique and special form of government our founders created, and to explain the real history, purpose, and structure of America. It hopes to offer a counter to the falsities gaining popularity in the past 20 years, probably even longer, that America is no better than any other country, no different and no more honorable. Indeed, the very qualities of our country and her people that make it greater under attack in a way that threatens the very foundation on which it balances. Keyboard warriors, echo chambers, and virtue signaling with no substance are all the means by which individuals hide from any thoughtful discourse with their neighbors and make nearly impossible any honest, intellectual discussion of the issues of the day. If you'd like to engage in those types of discussions, stay tuned. This episode is being recorded on March 15, 2023. Episode 95. If it is not all local, it probably should be. From employment law to property taxes, from school curricula to gun rights, and from criminal law to privacy law, it is our state governments, and to some degree our local governments, that regularly consider various legislative actions that affect our everyday lives. No doubt the federal government today has more of a role in our day-to-day than was ever envisioned, and has in many areas taken over the crux of regulation and policymaking from the governments of the states. In 2023, state law may be becoming more important than it has been in quite some time, and a lot of actions have been taken across the nation to implement the policy preferences of residents and legislators in particular states. In dividing power between the states and the newly formed federal government, our founders, as discussed in the prior episode, included two key provisions in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. First, the Supremacy Clause, which provides in Article 6, Clause 2 of the Constitution, that this Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land. And the judges in every state shall be bound thereby, anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding, makes clear that all properly enacted laws of the nation control over conflicting state law. The key to understanding the Supremacy Clause, however, comes an understanding that only those laws enacted within the authority granted the federal government by the Constitution are supreme to state law. It is for that reason many insisted on addition of the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution just two years after the document's ratification to ensure that where authority is not given in that document to the federal government, it is indeed retained by the states or the people, and the Supremacy Clause does not dictate otherwise. This vertical separation of powers like the horizontal separation of powers among our federal government's three branches, is a protection against tyranny. No single person, no single branch of government or level of government has all control. In addition, this provides to citizens more elected and other officials to whom they can voice their concerns, policy preferences, and desires as to the actions wanted from any particular government body. In addition, 
in addition to providing another level of government to the people, one aspect of federalism often overlooked and relevant to some of the actions being considered by states today is that much of federal policy relies on states and local governments for implementation. So in this episode, I will at least briefly introduce one big topic being debated in our states that does require them to implement federal law and also burdens them by having to to take funds and follow directions from another government body, such as the bill seeking to improve infrastructure. And of course, in terms of other big topics, there is the return of the abortion issue back to the states, which I will mention but have already covered in a previous episode. So let's talk about what the states are doing today and what laws went into effect this year or will go into effect later this year. Gun laws, drug laws, and more general criminal laws have often been addressed at the state level, and for the most part, they ought to be. For some of these actions, of course, the Constitution does have something to say, such as the Second Amendment's limitation on states' ability to regulate gun ownership and use. But this year, there are a lot of different proposals, either going into effect or being debated by our state legislators, that relate to criminal laws of some sort. Having recently discussed many of the new gun laws or proposals, this episode is a great opportunity to identify some other laws that may be based on concerns about crime or about citizen activity more generally. The debate, for example, over legalization of marijuana has been an active one in the states for years. Though some mention of action at the federal level to decriminalize it occurs from time to time, federal law still criminalizes possession and use. The states have realized, however, that their citizens seek action, either in standing by or strengthening laws against the growing, sale, distribution, possession, and or use of this drug, or in allowing the citizens access to it, either for medical reasons or any recreational reason. In 2023, for example, if you are a Connecticut resident with a conviction in that state for possession of marijuana, you likely found the conviction automatically removed from your record in whole or in part at the start of this year. And starting this year, the states of Maryland and Missouri both legalized recreational use of marijuana. And it's not yet entirely clear what regulations will be put in place to regulate that use, other than that the legalization, like for alcohol, at least in Maryland, will only be for those 21 years and up. Other states legalized use of this substance as of this year, including Arkansas, North Dakota, and South Dakota. And Oregon voters actually approved legalization of psychedelic mushrooms for recreational use on a 2020 ballot initiative. And this is the year when the state's regulatory bodies are expected to roll out regulations controlling such use, which use can only occur in regulated facilities. Voters in the state of Colorado didn't go quite that far, but did vote to decriminalize the use of these drugs, but without provisions for allowing, as Oregon will, manufacture and processing of them to be used in the licensed facilities. Other laws making changes to the criminal law landscape include Illinois' law to end cash bail, making pretrial release not dependent on a defendant's ability to post a cash bond. And Michigan's new laws will expunge a maximum of two felonies on a person's record if 10 years after completing the sentences for them, and there are no other run-ins with the law occurred, then you get that clean sweep. California went a different route in amending its laws related to someone's criminal record, allowing individuals to petition to seal their records four years after completing a sentence on a felony conviction, as long as no new felony charges occurred during that four-year period. 
on a little bit of an odder note, but one that highlights the uniqueness of each state's concerns and citizens. California has a new law going into effect that bans the use of rap lyrics as evidence in criminal trials unless a judge makes a determination first that they are directly related to the relevant crime. This law, interestingly, is in direct response to indictments in the state of Georgia of two rappers who were tied to gang activity through rap lyrics they had written. North Carolina criminal justice reforms are focusing on things like more extensive background checks for those seeking employment as law enforcement officers, and more training related to bias and excessive force for those law enforcement units. Beyond the criminal arena, other issues also took the stage in state legislatures and resulted in varied legal changes state to state, some of which are going into effect this year and some of which are still being debated. Abortion, infrastructure, taxes, employment laws, all these issues and more are also on the agenda of our state legislatures and being discussed in our gubernatorial offices. With the Supreme Court's decision returning the abortion issue back to the states, many states took prompt action, either via proposed and passed legislation or voter referenda, to determine what a particular state's policy would be on the availability of abortions in that state. And in addition to actual clinical abortions, states are currently debating a bunch of legislation regarding how the uh, abortion pill will be available to their state citizens. And when it comes to taxes, no doubt can exist that for most of us, the federal tax burden is the greatest. That does not take away from the fact that it is our states that determine what we will be taxed on sales, real and personal property, and the estates left behind by our loved ones, and more. So what kinds of actions are being taken on these issues today? In discussing these state actions, it cannot be overlooked that states are also now left to determine how to implement the Biden administration's infrastructure bill. As with such legislation, the funding may come primarily from the federal government, but the actual improvements on the ground to roads and bridges is often left to the states. What is also left, at least in part, though it should be much more of a part, are laws related to labor and employment for workers in a particular state. Here, the federal government, especially since the New Deal, has stepped in under its unreasonably expansive claimed Commerce Clause powers and regulated a lot of what we typically think of when we think of employment law minimum wage, union laws, anti-discrimination, and more. But still, much of the law governing employment is state in nature. And even where the federal government has stepped in, some states have taken action that goes further than that of the federal government. And as long as it's not in conflict with the federal law, those additional protections will apply. This year, some examples of changes occurring in the states on the employment issue include the following. Minimum wage increases are happening in 23 states, nearly half, but each of them setting it at a different limit above the minimum wage established by the federal government. States are providing paid family leave to employees, and a couple of those are now enacting ways for deductions from pay of the wages of employees to pay for that kind of leave. So now in Oregon and Colorado, employees will begin to see a portion of their wages deducted to pay for this benefit. Transparency in wages and benefits has become a topic in some states, with Washington State now requiring employers to include this information in job postings, rather than waiting until the job is offered to a candidate to provide those kinds of details. And another area where employment-related policy is very much controlled by the state is unemployment, and on that issue some states are indeed making changes, such as Oklahoma reducing the amount of time an individual can receive such benefits from 26 to 16 weeks. 
On this issue, for example, it makes complete sense that control is more local, as the jobs market varies place to place, such that one state's needs and wants regarding what safety net to provide to out-of-work residents should be a decision made more closely to home. And no discussion of government policy and current trends or changes can leave out tax policy. As it is indeed through taxes, we fund our government, and it is our tax dollars we seek to have spent in a way we deem appropriate. When it comes to state tax laws, a lot of changes are occurring this year. Reportedly, about two-thirds of our states are reducing their taxes as a result of state budget surpluses. If only our federal government could have the same problem. Such cuts, for example, are occurring in North and South Carolina, New York, Idaho, Indiana, Kentucky, Mississippi, Missouri, and Nebraska, quite a diverse group of states. And in Arizona, the state has opted for a flat tax at 2.5%, while Iowa is changing its tax brackets as its first step toward its own future flat tax system. Other states may not have cut taxes across the board, but are making changes to their tax laws that are likely to reduce the tax burden of state residents. This includes Virginia's reduction on taxes on groceries and personal items, and Kansas's similar reduction in taxes on groceries. Other states took a policy approach to show appreciation for and the need for certain residents to serve in public service positions, such as Rhode Island now exempting military pensions from any tax, and Georgia allowing its residents to deduct from their taxes contributions to local law enforcement charities. Of course, Because states and the policy preferences of their residents differ, not all states are cutting taxes. Massachusetts, for example, has a voter-approved initiative going into effect that will impose an additional tax of 4% on any income earned by an individual over a million dollars. It's not known as Taxachusetts for nothing. And Wyoming took action to address a different state tax concern, actually the fact that it was having difficulty collecting what was owed to it in certain circumstances. That state's counties, for example, were failing to be able to collect taxes on the extraction of some natural resources, including oil, gas, uranium, and coal. Those taxes were not due until 18 months after extraction, but often those large tax bills went unpaid. So now, under the law that is going into effect this year, those extracting those natural resources in Wyoming must pay those taxes monthly. Here again, Not all states have this kind of industry, so decisions on how to regulate and tax it are uniquely reserved to those states that do. Let's talk about schools. Schools are always something of interest to me, and they're always something that should be of primary concern and focus of our state and local officials. What a community teaches its younger generations is very personal and can be based on different cultural priorities depending on location and background. Other day-to-day school policies that aren't so controversial can still vary to some extent out of necessity, where things like missed days due to inclement weather can impact educational opportunities, where the timing of sunrise and sunset may be worth consideration when determining school start times and times of extracurricular events, and where local industry may make it reasonable to structure the school day differently place-to-place. Here, think of the different concerns related to community values and student safety in determining the school day details for students in New York City versus those attending rural schools where the economy and community is heavily populated by those involved in agriculture. But perhaps what has gotten the most attention in recent years is not when we start the school day, how long it is, what busing is available, or whether to build a new sports stadium, but what we are actually teaching our students, what bathrooms they are using, and who is using them with them, and what teachers are paid. 
These issues have made it into the national consciousness, and in some ways, as a nation, we do need to decide in what direction we seek to go culturally. But as a federalist system of varied and numerous states, it is still in our local communities where even these decisions are more appropriately made. Truly to appreciate the kinds of detailed educational decisions made by state legislatures and local school boards, and being considered by any number of them currently, and why you should pay attention to them, Think of all the kinds of things that must be addressed about public education, other than simply funding. For example, whether to allow distance learning in this new technological age, and under what circumstances and subject to what requirements such learning should be allowed. Class size limits. Career training programs, for example, are being offered as an alternative to pushing children post-high school to higher education. And career training programs are the subject of a number number of pending bills in a large number of states school choice and the ability to attend schools outside of your neighborhood, and mental health services for students are all things in the forefront of discussion among your state and local officials. In regard to what we teach our students, much press has been given to the fight over the teaching of critical race theory, and much debate has been had about how that concept should even be defined when it comes to K-12 curricula. 2023 saw laws go into effect in places like North Dakota that now prohibit the teaching of this theory to public school students, joining states like Georgia that have similar laws that went into effect last year. Florida similarly has bans on certain types of teaching that teach inherent bias to students. Many of these laws have also expressly given parents more power to challenge what materials are being taught to their children with Georgia's law requiring investigation into a parent complaint about any particular textbook. Perhaps the greatest good coming from these more visible statewide changes in education law is to get parents more involved in the educational system, which in turn should only help bring the focus back to the local school boards and state governments that always should have been captaining the ship of education. At this point, though our states are still the primary place where education policy is made, The imposed requirements that come with the receipt of federal funds are numerous, and some scrutiny should always be given to whether any of the federal mandates are constitutionally appropriate, where the operation of public schools was not, and has never been, a federal power granted to that national government by our Constitution. When talking about schools, it's important also to be aware of the actions being considered that involve children and society more generally. For example, if you want to access pornographic material online in Louisiana, You may now be required to input your driver's license or other government-issued identification information on the website to confirm you are at least 18 years old. With this law, it is also worth discussing that some legislative steps are only first steps, as it's yet to be determined how actually this law will be enforced, how it will be enforced against Internet content providers as well as users, how to monitor compliance, and how to define pornographic material. As the bill only requires this age confirmation for sites providing content that is that is at least 33.3% pornographic in nature. Other child protection laws or laws that could be viewed as community protection are percolating in the states. States like Washington and California are confronting how to protect the finances, futures, and privacy of children whose parents have opted to use them on social media sites for financial gain. Our recent story in Teen Vogue actually highlighted these laws by interviewing several individuals who are just coming into adulthood whose childhoods were chronicled by one or both of their parents on sites like Facebook, Instagram, and now TikTok in ways that expose the very details of their lives to the world without their consent 
and without any right to the money that was made off the posting of those stories. And it is in policy realms like this one that we should all want the decisions made, at least at the start, on the state and local level, so that particular communities are able to balance for themselves the rights of parents to raise their children with concerns about this kind of parental activity. And it is states that are more apt to respond legislative in a quick fashion as new technologies create these new legal issues. We can learn which policies work and which policies don't if we allow the ingenuity and the inventiveness of state policymaking as new issues confront our communities. And it is not just the protection of children recent state actions seek to address. Overall, community safety concerns have led to more than just criminal justice reforms and have resulted in laws like Florida's new requirement that those employed by apartment communities pass background checks and that tenants receive more notice of any plan by apartment apartment management to enter a residence. Clearly, knowing that the people who have keys to your residence are not known criminals is an important safety concern. And to protect us all from unwanted nude photos of others, which is shockingly a real problem in today's digital world, New Hampshire has this year criminalized what it deems cyber flashing, making it illegal to send someone a photo or video of one's genitals without a request for such a message. Indeed, dealing with the cyber world is going to be tricky for every level of government in every nation, but state action that can occur more quickly provides what federalism has always provided, a chance for smaller communities in the form of states to experiment with different approaches for us all to learn what may actually work in addressing a particular problem. As always, thank you for listening. The states are facing a lot of issues. Some are issues that all 50 of them are confronting due to national and global conditions. Others are unique to those states. But where unique state issues exist and are still being managed and addressed at the state level, all is right with our system. It is with those issues thrust onto the national stage, when they always should have remained more locally controlled, where the hope is 2023 and beyond will bring more control being returned to the state and local levels, where policy choices can be more easily tweaked and altered to address the ever-changing state of things. Alexis de Tocqueville made this keen observation. In democratic countries, as well as elsewhere, Most of the branches of productive industry are carried on at a small cost by men little removed by their wealth or education above the level of those whom they employ. So too should we be governed by those little removed by their condition from that of those they represent. Thus, those closest to us, geographically and culturally, those in our same cities, counties, states, and to a lesser degree regions, should have the most to say about the things that matter most in our daily lives and the federal government should remain focused on those things uniquely national. Next episode, it seems time to revisit some economic topics, particularly in the light of the failures of Silicon Valley and Signature Banks, the ever-present topic of whether the Fed will raise, lower, or let interest rates alone, and where the markets appear to respond rapidly and then stabilize with every new piece of economic data. I am by no means an economist, but I watch with interest all of these things for my own education and financial planning, and I hope that discussing them here may offer some additional thoughts for you as well. Until next time, stay free, be brave, search for truth, defend our Constitution, and God bless America. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you can share the podcast with just one person, we can continue to further the entire purpose for it, 
to encourage real discourse in society about the state of our nation and our communities. If you wish to help this podcast continue, you can contribute to support it by going to anchor.fm backslash solus hyphen veritas and clicking the support button. The Defending American Exceptionalism podcast is written and produced by Solus Veritas. Original music by Canticum Octar. Special thanks to Morales Susceptor. Copyright 2023.